This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Italian American Podcast. The first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about and celebrate their brilliant heritage. We're your hosts, Anthony Fasano and Dolores Alfieri Taranto. We're first generation and third generation Italian Americans from the same small village outside of New York City. As writers and speakers, we've both spent years exploring Italian American identity. And through this podcast, we continue this exploration with you. In each episode, we talk to dynamic Italian Americans, from athletes to authors to entrepreneurs to find out how their heritage has influenced their success, their values, and their outlook on life. We do it with a lot of heart, a lot of smarts, and a lot of laughs. laughs. As the saying goes, there are two types of people, those who are Italian and those who wish they were Italian. Whatever camp you're in, grab an espresso and get your hand gestures ready (laughs) for this episode of the Italian American Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be taking some questions from our audience. We're going to go through a list of them. And if really, this episode's because of you as the listener for sending them in. Dolores, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Anthony. going to welcome our um, old listeners, <laughs> our longtime listeners and our new listeners. Just so you know, uh, as Anthony said, this is episode 87, which means there are 86 other episodes that you can listen to all about uh, terrific Italian-American topics. That's for sure. And if you're new to the podcast or if you're a longtime listener but just haven't subscribed, please consider subscribing to the podcast. By subscribing to the podcast, what that means is whenever there's a new episode, it will come right to your phone. You'll get a little pop-up, hey, new episode from the Italian-American podcast, and you can listen and stay up to date. You could do that by going to our website, italianamericanpodcast.com podcast.com and just click the listen tab and you'll find a subscription to iTunes button. And we've uh, been having a really terrific time in our private paid only Facebook group, The New Neighborhood. Please visit italianneighborhood.com to learn more. We've been uh, mentioning it on the show, talking about it on the show, and it really, the, the neighborhood has been growing and steadily, weekly, daily, and it's so exciting to see. It's a really great feeling to know that we're, we're part of this community. It's exactly the vision that we had when we started out doing the show over three years ago, so it's pretty exciting. Just um, also a reminder. You can't just send us a Facebook request to join the group. You have to visit italianneighborhood.com, click on the join now button and follow the prompts. Yeah. And I think the new neighborhood is turning into a city. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point. (laughs) uh, We're just getting a lot of new members and a lot of great discussions. It's a funny way to describe it, but it's kind of like the podcast on steroids, right? Yeah. Dolores and I talk about this stuff on our own, or we have a guest on, uh, like we had John Franco recently, and we're talking about traditions. But then when you see, you know, all of these Italian Americans in one place sharing their traditions, their recipes, it's just, and then like, you know, playing off of each other, it's just a great thing to see because the whole point of this is that your neighbor, I'm not saying your neighbor's not Italian American, but 
in the days past when our ancestors came, everyone around them was Italian American because really Italian, they came here and they had their neighborhoods. We don't really have that anymore, but now they can just go into the new neighborhood online, post something and you feel like basically you're at home because everyone's responding like, oh, we had the same thing last weekend or this is the way we made it. This was our recipe. So it's just really been a great experience. We've made a lot of really good friends actually through it. And, you know, we're continuing to talk about getting together with them. And we recently did our first call. We featured Lou Del Bianco who's been on the show before he came on and did a whole thing about Mount Rushmore. There was a lot of interaction with our members, a lot of back and forth, and it was just great. It's been great. And we, we look forward to growing it. And so speaking of the new neighborhood, as Dolores was saying, you know, we're just, it's just so many people and friends all together. We have a new sponsor of the Italian American podcast who happens to be one of the members of our community, the new neighborhood. He's been a longtime member and we want to just give a shout out to the law office of Michael DeSapio. Have you dreamed of reconnecting with your ancestral homeland by becoming an Italian citizen? Since a change in Italian law has allowed dual citizenship between Italy and the United States, thousands of Italian Americans have done just that. Italian citizenship by descent is granted to those individuals who can prove Italian ancestry, even if through several generations. If you or a family member is interested in pursuing their Italian citizenship, contact the law office of Michael DeSapio for a free consultation to see if you qualify. They are a full-service law firm based in New Jersey that has served clients throughout the United States in assisting with dual citizenship applications. Mike will work with you and his experienced network of researchers, genealogists, and translators both in Italy and the U.S. to guide you through the process. Don't miss the opportunity to reclaim your right to be an Italian citizen. Contact Mike at 908-996-6766 or www.desapioesq.com for more information. Again, I'll give you that number. It's 908-996-6766 and definitely give Mike a call. He's a great guy. He's been a longtime member of the New Neighborhood and a supporter of the podcast and he will help you. And I could tell just by the questions, Dolores, that we've been getting from people, dual citizenship is going to be of importance to a lot of listeners. Oh, for sure. It's such, I mean, it's also a big topic of conversation in the new neighborhood. I feel like that is one of the the top three things people are always asking each other about to kind of get more information. How did you do it? How did you do it? Did you have to go through this, et cetera? So it's yeah. very, um, it's a very hot topic among Italian Americans. For sure. All right. So on that, let's jump in right now to the Q&A section of this episode, and we're going to answer your questions. Let's do it. All right, Dolores, it's time for a little Q&A. You ready? Yes, I am. And and you were just saying off mic how much you love doing these kinds of shows. Yeah, it's just different. You know? <laughs> Listen, we've had the podcast for years now, and I think we've got a, you know, somewhat of a good beat with our listeners, and we've gone back and forth with them on emails. And I think it's always fun to, you know, hear some of their questions and try to answer them the best we can. I mean, listen, we're not like, we don't know everything in the Italian American world. Of course, we've done a lot. We've talked to a lot of people, but we have like some opinions and we can give the best information we can give. Some opinions. I like that. (laughs) We have some opinions. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's true. No, and it's great that people are actually asking us these questions and we do get a lot of them even when we don't put out a call for a Q&A episode but these are you know these are questions from the last call right we had enough for 
two, possibly three episodes. I mean, we still have some more in there. So that showed us that this is something that our listeners actually want, right? That they do have questions and um, they, they want to hear the answers to them. So we are not experts, but we do have the luxury of having a lot of conversations about these things. And um, we have obviously immersed our lives in the study and the research of and the living, right, of these kinds of living, things. Yeah. So that's kind of a, a critical <laughs> component. So if you're hearing your question asked here and you're wondering, I don't remember asking it, it was probably months ago because it was back from episode 67 and we still just collected these questions and kept them. All right. So the first question comes from Joe DiGiorgio, who is a member of our new neighborhood, A Place for Italian Americans, which is our Facebook group that we mentioned earlier on in the episode. Joe asks, and I'm going to pitch this one to Dolores. I find that as I'm getting older, I'm trying to find a balance between upholding Italian-American food traditions, high carb, and eating better and staying active for health. Do you struggle with this? How do you handle this now? <laughs> it's just almost every day. It's a <laughs> This is an enormous part of my adult life. Um, that's part of why Anthony's sent it over to me. Um, and I think a lot of us, a lot of us Italian Americans who really not only just love the taste of the traditional foods, but we love cooking them, right? That's a big part of it. I look at my mom and she's always baking something or cooking oh something, right? Oh gosh, we had the Christmas Eve spectacular at Dolores's place and her mom was like, just feet. It was like not, I mean, everybody brought food as well, but of course, like you smelled her mom cooking everything and everything just kept coming up. It just kept eating. And listen, I kind of give myself a pass on the holidays. I think like, I think even Pat O'Boyle was saying that like, you know, from Thanksgiving to New Year's day, don't bother me with food, you know, talking about how, what food I'm eating or whatnot. (laughs) And I agree with that a hundred percent. I agree with it because a lot of the foods too, the Italian American foods, we get those kind of foods around the holidays only. That was going to be, that's the main thing. And that's what I was going to say to Joe is I think For me, the best that I have been able to come up with is number one, coming to a kind of acceptance that I'm not in this way, my mother. I can't, first of all, you know, my life, I'm, I'm younger and my life is different, right? It's very busy. So I can't bake cookies and, uh, really delicious, but not so great for you. Italian American dishes all the time. But that's what nuanas are for, right? So you just kind of accept that and and let it go. And you know that those are treats because we can't eat that way every day because it really does cause many problems, you know, just your physical shape, your health, on and on and on. And we have to respect our bodies and we have to respect uh, the lives that God gave us, right? And take care of ourselves. So what I have come to is I don't eat pasta alone. I don't <laughs> eat pizza alone. This is Dolores' guidelines for life. Yes. I don't eat anything traditional that is not so great for me by myself or even with my husband on like a random weeknight. Right. Because so, you're saving it for family gatherings, right? Exactly. Exactly. And I do that because so then when we do have something like the Christmas Eve spectacular that we recorded and everyone came over that we had all these wonderful traditional dishes and I can just eat, I can eat whatever I want. I don't worry about it because I didn't have pasta and pizza already three times that week. No, that's exactly my philosophy. My philosophy is that most of the time I eat relatively healthy, right? Like I have a a salad every day for lunch. I have a good breakfast, good dinner, like a meat and a vegetable. So if I go to my parents, if I go to my grandmother's, if I go out to a restaurant, I'm not worried about that. 
Exactly. That's right. I mean, we, you know, we eat, we, you know, we go out to eat together a lot, all of us, you know, or, or we maybe come here and eat and we do our share. We drink our wine, but you, you just can't do it on, on a regular basis. And another thing is that it was really never supposed to be that way in, in Italy. That's certainly not how our ancestors ate right. because they didn't have the money right. and the luxury to eat such delicacies, even if a delicacy is, you know, uh, a pasta with spaghetti, spaghetti with nuts and anchovies. That's, that would have been like a delicacy for my, my nonna, let's say. So they didn't eat that way. And even if they did eat that way, they were working in the fields. Right. My nonna, those things available to them. That's what they had, right? That's what they they had. had. It's exactly you. If you didn't eat the bread, you weren't eating, you know, so you ate the bread, but you know, my, Grandparents were working in the fields and, and climbing mountains every morning to go collect firewood, meaning you're burning it off. But it's also that's not even the point because it's all the food that you have. It wasn't until we came to America and really assimilated in some ways and started making money that, you know, the Italian-American cuisine is born. And then like the Italian-American abundance, you know, abundanza, like eating so much of it all the time right. came to pass. I just feel like we need to step back a little bit. And realize that that tradition is not really, uh, it's a tradition, but it's not really like a deeply rooted one. If that makes sense. Yeah. It's Italian American. And it's also just brief, you know, in the, in the span of time, it's just a few decades. Right. Really. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think if anything, some of the traditions that might be deeper might be like, and I think we looked into this a little bit once, like, you know, for example, like the Sunday dinner, like if you trace it back to Italy, you know, on Sundays they would go to church and then they would get together and they would have this meal. So there may be some traditions in terms of things like that, that might go deep, but the actual food that they were eating is not necessarily what we're eating. Right. And the amount of it and the amount of it. Exactly. So I think that that's true. And I hope that, and again, we're not talking, I don't think we're talking bad about Italian American food. I could eat it all day long. It's just, uh, as Joe points out, it's certainly not healthy to eat like that on a very regular basis. And I actually read a very interesting book because I heard this guy speak on a podcast. He was a, he's a doctor. He's in, uh, he's an MD and he's, the book is entitled how not to die, discover the food scientifically proven to prevent and reverse disease. And what this guy was saying, which is very interesting is that The reason that, unfortunately, like, you know, heart attacks and things of these natures are very prevalent in America is directly related to the food that people eat. And what he was saying was like, you can change that and control that, of course. But like people often say like, yeah, you know, this or this runs in my family, right? Like heart disease or something. And what he was saying was like, it only runs in your family because for you're eating the same food. You know, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. Was, it was really interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like it made me think like, you know what? This guy's like onto something. And what he was saying that was very interesting is he's like, he went to school. He's a doctor. He's an MD. He went to medical school. And he's like, they never taught us about nutrition. Mm, he's like, I went I through seven years of medical school and I never learned anything about nutrition and how it affects your diet and your overall health. He's like, so his approach to being a doctor is like, I, and actually what's interesting is in the book, he has a whole sections of the book where he studied, like, you know, you hear it like these hot zones where people live to like 120 years old. I think like Sardinia is one of them or something. Yeah. Like he studied what those people eat. And so he goes through all that in the book. I mean, of course it's a lot of, it's like beans and, you know, and, and, and nuts and things like that. But 
It was just very interesting to me to think about what he's saying is that, you know, like we're a lot of us fall into patterns and, and traditions from people that cause us to eat a certain way. And unfortunately, like certain diseases that are prevalent in the United States are directly related to that. So. Yeah, that's totally something to consider. I mean, also, you know, you have I have people like this in my life all the time because I do choose to eat differently and I am health conscious. So, you know, you'll have like the cousin or whatever who's like why can't you just eat white bread? You know, right. we've been eating white bread all our lives. If it was good for, you know, if it was good for us or good for my grandparents, it's good for you kind of thing. And, you know, the fact of the matter is our grandparents weren't eating white bread and it wasn't good enough for you. It was like this time period right. where this concoction was made and sold to American people. And even the bread we eat now is not the same as the bread your nonna in Southern Italy would have, would have made. Oh, yeah, no, not at all. And that's what people don't understand. Well, why now bread is an enemy, carbs are an enemy? Well, because we don't make food like we used to. And the wheat now is a completely different wheat than the one that used to be grown. So you used to have a wheat that had, you know, all the goodness in the germ. So all the fiber, all the vitamins, all the minerals, and it was a longer stalk wheat. So it didn't break down in your body the same way today's wheat breaks down. It was slower because, you know, fiber, we're getting like kind of scientific here, but like the <laughs> fiber will slow down how fast, you know, carbs, let's say, are turned into sugar. I in your body to get into this one. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I'm kind of, I'm generalizing in, in a sense. I think I'm getting this all right, you know, but it's no, the I basic idea. Right. I don't you're need right. any scientists sending me letters telling me I got a part wrong. Right. The basic idea is the same, right? So now wheat is grown. It's short stock. It's a shorter stock and every, all the goodness is separated out of it. Also all the fiber and all the minerals and the vitamins are stripped out of it. And what's made, What's thrown into flour is all just the crap right. that hurts you. Right. So I like to actually buy – this might be something helpful, Joe. I like to buy a sprouted flour, which actually tastes no different than – at least to me than regular flour. So if I am going to make some kind of bread or some kind of crust – you use the sprouted flour because, I mean, I won't go too far into it. You can do some research, but sprouted flour is more like the kind of flour um, our ancestors would have eaten. And it breaks down completely differently in your body because all, it's whole and um, and unrefined. So it's more more like closer to a living organism, though I don't think it's a living organism, but... We, if that uh, makes sense. We do that too. We use almond flour or coconut flour sometimes on chicken cutlets and stuff like that to give it just so you're not using the typical breadcrumbs, which are, right. you know, not great. But Also with breadcrumbs, you can buy, there's the, um, like that sprouted Ezekiel bread and like toast it. Right. And then I just did that in, uh, I made meatloaf the other night and it, you just tasted no different. It was delicious. There's no breadcrumb company sponsoring this episode, by the way. No. <laughs> 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 anyway, I Joe, hope that helped, Joe. Joe, we gave you the Italian American version of the answer, but the short answer is <laughs> eat clean eighty percent of the time, and then go out with your family and eat pasta and exactly you know, everything else. And you enjoy want yourself. Enjoy mm -hmm. yourself. Yeah. All right. Next question is kind of a two-part question from Christine Malillo. I'm considering a trip to Italy to visit the towns my family come from, Faricchio and Cusano Muto. I was hoping to stay in Airbnbs in the towns and possibly just really seep into the culture by staying in each town for a few weeks. 
So I'm taking that as a first part of the question. And the second part, do you have suggestions on how I can find relatives in these towns that are trustworthy and open to spending some time with a removed family member? So first of all, just to tackle your first part about staying in Airbnbs and the length of your stay, I totally agree with you, uh, Christine. I spent about six weeks in Italy when I was there traveling, when I, uh, which I you know, wrote my book, 40 Days in Italy, about. And... We modified our schedule after people told, like we were jumping around like city to city, like two days in one city, three days in another city. And someone kind of looked at it and they were like, you're crazy, especially we had three kids. They're like, you know, by the time you like unpack, you're leaving. And so we modified it and we tried to stay, you know, five to seven days in a city. And I think it really made all the difference because like you're saying, you do really get to seep in to the culture, you know, seep it all in and just really, you know, enjoy it. You could try different stores, try different cafes. There's more time. And I think if you look back on your trip, if you do that, it'll be much more rewarding. Anyway, that's, that's you get into the rhythm of a place, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, two, three days is nothing. Right. You know, like you can't even, you you won't even find the best grocery shops by that time. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yep. That's good advice. Yeah. So I think that's a good approach. And then secondly, the second one is not that clear cut in terms of, you know, how do you find relatives that are trustworthy? I mean, for me, what I did, which I know may not happen for everybody, but I happened to get lucky in that I had an aunt, my grandmother's sister, who had visited family in Italy. Now, we hadn't had any connection with the family in Italy, but she had visited them for some reason eight to 10 years ago. And I actually ended up finding them through my own research and a couple of websites. And what happened was when I contacted them and they said, yes, you know, we are related to you. They sent a picture that from when my grandmother's sister was there on the farm with them a couple of years ago. So it was like a, a really a no brainer. So that was easy. So I, now I realize that might not work for everybody, but the website that I used to find them was, I'll spell it out real quick. It's P-A-G-I-N-E, which is Pagina in Italian, P-A-G-I-N-E, and then Bianche, which is B-I-A-N-C-H-E dot I-T. And basically what it was is you could put the last name in in the town in Italy and it returns all the results. So I put like Fasano in the town my family was from and I got a bunch of people and I sent them all a letter explaining who I was, who I was looking for, and, and two people connected with me on Facebook because I put my Facebook profile on there and they said so-and-so and then they sent the picture and the rest is history. So you could try that route. The thing is, I mean, I don't want to sound like, you know, against Italians or, you know, but you have to, of course, be careful. I mean, you're not just going to say this. Someone has well, that's a, with everybody, not just Italians. No, I know, but right? what I'm saying is if there's someone has a last name that's the same as you in Italy, in a region that you're from, it does not necessarily mean you're related. I guess that's right. my point. So just be caught. Yeah, of course you have to be, you have to be cautious all the time. You would Airbnbs and things like that. But I would just say be cautious. Any kind of evidence you can get, like if you can do some research on your own on one of the ancestral websites or, you know, something like the, uh, the ship manifest or something with names of people that might match or specific addresses or some kind of region, that's your best bet. If not, it could be a little risky. The other thing I can tell you is that if you can't nail it down, just meet them at a coffee shop in the yeah. town or something. You know, meet them in a public arena. Don't go to their house, so to speak. Right, Dolores? Yeah, that makes sense. You would know better than me. I've never found 
any long lost relatives. So I'm actually listening to you. I'm like, Oh, that's good advice. You know, (laughs) just taking it in, you know? Yeah. I mean, I guess short of like requiring them to do like a blood test, make sure that you're genetically a match. Right. Yeah. You're taking a little bit of a risk. I imagine, especially if you don't have what you said, which is a connection, right? Like your aunt had been there before, et cetera. If, If it's a cold meeting, you know, and they haven't met if you have relatives in Southern Italy who haven't met any American relatives ever, then, you know, you're, you are taking a little bit of a risk, but I think just, just be smart. Like you would meeting anybody new, like you said, go to a public place, you know, ask around, just, just do as much research as you can and trust your gut. That's the biggest thing. Trust your instincts. Yeah. And one thing I'll say to you really important is that if you don't find someone in the town, still visit it. I mean, we talk about this on the podcast all the time. Right. Going back to the village that your ancestors came from is a very moving experience. We had several episodes talking about blood memory and things of that nature. It's a pretty, pretty interesting experience. Like I went back to Sarno where I didn't have any living relatives, but that's where my great grandparents came from on my, on my grand, my mother's side. And I did find information in the Comune and I also of course, it was like siesta time or whatever. You know, they're all out sleeping. And I found a little shop that had, you know, the pasta pie. Um, you know, people call it different things. But, you know, a lot of times here it's called Easter pies or whatnot. And it was the same exact one that my that my grandma makes because she got the recipe from her mother who came from that town. And it tasted exactly the same. Yeah, I remember that. I remember you which talking was, about that. Which was an amazing experience going there. And so anyway, that's, that's kind of answers to that question. I hope. Well, well, Drew did the same thing. My husband, you know, he, I also was going to say that there are places where it's not uncommon that you won't have any relatives because everybody left, Right. right? You know, everybody left. And if there was a couple people who stayed behind, they, they probably passed away. So my husband's, uh, grandfather, grandparents are from Alicudi, which is very small, it's actually a, an inactive volcano. Okay. So we call it an island. Now it's part of the Aeolian islands in, in Sicily. So we didn't have any relatives we were going to look for when we went there. There's only 30 people who live there year round now oh at gosh. this point, it's very remote, but it was wonderful for him to see Alicudi, you know, it was still worth the trip for him even in a, such a small place where there, it wasn't like there were local delicacies that he could try. There wasn't even, there wasn't even a lot of people to talk to and there wasn't even a lot to see, but he did see the house where his grandpa was born and where his great grandparents lived. And like his great grandfather uh, had a wood shop. So we saw that. And it was also just something for him to be able to look out from Alicudi, I think. Oh, and, and I guarantee you, he'll, he'll tell you it was like a life. He'll remember that for the rest of his life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Yep. And, and, and that's why you go, whether you know people there or not, because it's just, it's really the experience, which is a powerful. He'll thing. never forget it. He could look at book exactly. after book. Yeah. No, it was just being there and, and just the feeling of knowing that you're walking on ground that the people who came before you walked on. Yeah, it's, it's it's powerful stuff. So thanks for asking those questions, Christine. They're, they're excellent. All right, next one's from Marilyn Walden. When I visit cities in the U.S., I always look up to see if they have a little Italy. If they do, it's always on my agenda to visit. Oddly enough, I'm from Houston, Texas, and we don't have one, and we are the fourth largest city in the country. Why are Italians not concerned with promoting our culture as so many other cultures seem to be? 
So I think, Marilyn, this is a very interesting question. And the way you phrased it is kind of interesting to me. Of course, I don't have you in front of me to kind of ask if that's what you really mean. But based on your question, it seems to me like you're kind of saying that Little Italy's are a way of promoting Italian culture. And so why don't you see more of them? If that's not what you're saying, I'm sorry, but that's how I have to answer the, well, the question. Way I, the way I take it is that, <laughs> is that she's she's saying that Little Italy are created to yeah to promote Italian culture. So why right. there's why isn't there one in the fourth largest city? So right, but they're not, and that's why that's what. So I think the premise of the question is is actually what's worth talking about. Yeah, Little Italy's are were not created to promote our culture at all. They were historical. Hamlets, if you will, where Italians congregated when they came here from Italy as immigrants. And they became Little Italy's. They were dubbed Little Italy's, if you will, because all Italians were living there. So I don't personally know how large or small the Italian community in Houston, Texas was or even is. But at one point, if there were a lot of Italians in Houston, I promise you there was a Little Italy section of Houston. I don't know that for a fact, but there was, even if it was just a local understanding of here's the little Italy. Right. I mean, when I lived in Arkansas for a little while and people, of course, knew I was a New York Italian and people would tell me, I forget where it was right now, but there was a section in Arkansas that was known as the little Italy. Now the problem, or maybe it's not a problem. It's kind of a double-edged sword is that Italians don't live in these enclaves anymore because they've become successful. Right. They've become assimilated and they're part of the larger American society. So if you don't see a little Italy in every, you know, in, in a lot of the towns you go to in, in the U S it's just because in the history of our time here, we just don't live in little Italy's anymore. So they, other people move in, other ethnicities move in. I mean, look at the little Italy in, in on Mulberry Street, arguably the most famous Little Italy, and most of it has now become Chinatown because the Italians have moved out over the decades. And what's left of it is really just this little historical, actually what, what Marilyn's referring to, right? It, that's the only Little Italy I, I feel like I really know of that's kind of a, a very historical, cultural promoter. If yeah. that makes sense. No, that, you know, that does make sense. Right? I'm glad yeah. you're saying it too because I think you're right. I think a lot of people that aren't familiar with Little Italy's, which makes sense because there are not that many left anymore that are – especially ones that are really thriving. And so the point is is that most people might think – a lot of Italian-Americans might think that people created Little Italy's as a way to kind of like promote the culture. And you know, Dolores is right. It's not. In fact – Arthur Avenue in the Bronx. Right. You know, yep. we did a, a tour there last year with some of our listeners and got a little bit of the background of it. And this is literally families that have owned these buildings for years that a lot of them bought the buildings when they came here for very little money, which means none of them pay rent at this point. And this is kind of why this one area is still pretty good, pretty thriving in terms of like people going there and buying food and getting together. And so they don't, they own the buildings. They're able to keep the costs down and they're able to, you know, work together with the restaurants back and forth. It's like a little community there. And it's actually, the tour was pretty cool and, and pretty amazing. And so 
I think that, you know, I'm glad that Dolores kind of outlined that because I think it is an important thing to note is that, listen, this is a lot of where our ancestors lived when they came here. Right. Like, and and Arthur Avenue is more, it's less of a, a, a promoter. I mean, it is by virtue of people going there for the wonderful food and right. groceries. It's It's still very much a place where people can go shopping for Italian, good Italian food and imports. Right. But it stemmed from what you were talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Yes. And it's a lot smaller, like, like every other little Italy than, than it used to be, quote unquote. But there's, there's a great part in the Italian American series that we're always referencing. And I forget, I'm blanking right now on which shop it is, but there's one of the, the shop, I can see it in my, my mind right now. Um, what one of the shops from Arthur? It's right across or? from Arnie. You know, it's uh down in Little Italy. It's one of the stores right across from Arnie Rossi's shop. Uh, and I can't remember right now. I'm blanking, but he, he's making the 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 son or the grandson of the, the the Italian who founded that shop that's still there. He's they're known for their mozzarella, and they're, they're making he's making the fresh mozzarella, and he's talking to the camera, and he says, you know, a lot of people come to Little Italy here and they get upset because of how small it's become and how little of it, little of it is left. And he, and, and it makes them upset. He says, but you know, you were never really supposed to stay here. Right. It was always supposed to be a place a of transition. Place. Yes. So you were coming from the old world into the new. It was a place that was familiar. was, you were in an unfamiliar place, right? But because you were in this little Italy, the unfamiliar was made a little bit more familiar because everybody around you spoke your language, understood more or less your traditions. You know, that's we could get into that because right. of the different areas, you know, the Sicilians versus right. the Nabladans, et cetera. The regional languages. Regional languages and the way you make pasta fazool that way. No, you make pasta fazool right. So that that's that's, you know, getting a little too far into it for this conversation. But yeah. but basically that was the point of it. And then when you were ready, you left. You moved to the suburbs. You moved to the country. You you know, you you were always supposed to leave. So I you know, I hope that answers your question, Marilyn. It I don't I don't know that it's really a negative thing. I promoting our culture as so as so many other cultures seem to be. That's an interesting question. Uh, I think Dolores, I don't know. I think it's an important question because I think it's important that we do let our listeners know that don't know. That's what little at least stem, stem from, especially some of our younger listeners that may not be aware of it is because I could see how a younger Italian American can say like, Hey, we're going to Arthur Avenue. It's a fun place. It's a place of Italian culture. Promote like it, ha like you said, that happened now, right? It evolved into that. But it's not the reason it started, which is the reason that some of these other cities where you might say, why isn't there a little Italy here? That's the reason. Right. Exactly. And it might not mean we're not promoting our culture just because, the, I mean, it does not, I, let me say it differently. It does not mean we're not interested in promoting our culture as so many other cultures are. It just means our culture is at a different place than say the Chinese who have an enormous China, Chinatown in downtown New York City. That's a perfect way. Well, once again, thank you, uh, Marilyn, for that question. I think it was an important one, and I'm glad that, that you sent it in. Yeah, it, was, it, it sparked a good point and a good conversation. All right, we got one last question here, which comes to us from Karen Whitney. 
What are the most important questions to ask of our Italian families here and abroad? This is a good question, Karen. And we've both talked about this before on the podcast. And, you know, you can use all the online tools that you want in terms of genealogy and ancestral research, but there's nothing like getting the real stories from your family. And I know for me, in my experience, talking mostly with my grandma, I like to ask just about, you know, stories because the stories are things that you can't necessarily find on these websites. You can find the ship manifests and the draft cards and things of that nature. But the stories around, you know, what was your father like? Tell me some stories about him when he went to work. And, you know, what are some things that you and your uh, siblings did? You know, like she would tell me stories like her mom would give her like a nickel and she would have to go down to the to the grocery and you know, and, and order dinner and get, you know, five cents to get a whole dinner for her family of six or seven people. So that's what I would recommend, Karen, is that yes, of course you want to try to find any facts and years and dates and stuff like that, that you can find. Like my grandma told me that her grandmother was killed in the battle of Salerno in 1943, which helped me to, when I was there in Sarno to get that information, cause I knew her death year. So things like that are helpful. But you can't get the stories anywhere else. So that would be my recommendation. What do you think, Dolores? Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, you know, I I actually am not so good with dates and years. It's something about my family. I don't know if it's just like the kind of older school, Southern Italian way. But even if I ask my mom, you know, what year did this person die? Or uh, when was this person born? You know, even if it was somebody really close to her, she doesn't really always know the date. You know, it's not like today where, you know, you know, your birthday is this day and this year and your mother knows it for, she's, you know, she'll laugh and she'll say, we didn't, we didn't think of these things then, you know, like we just, we just didn't, we didn't pay attention to them. So for me, I don't know if, if that's part of the reason, but dates and times and months, all these things like that are great for research. But really what I know a lot more about is the personalities of people that I've never met and never will meet uh, because of course they've passed away and the stories that tell you more about their personalities. So I agree. I think just asking your relatives, you know, tell me about how you and daddy met, you know, tell me about how grandma and grandpa met how was your brother or how was your uncle, your great uncle? So just tell us some stories about who they were. And then through those stories, you learn just so much about your family. Uh, you also learn a lot about the personalities of the people who make up your character, right? Your DNA. And nothing really can replace that. Yeah, for sure. And I think just like kind of in total, I think when you're thinking about ancestry research and family history and things of that nature, you can almost think of it as like if you're building a house, you know, the framework would be like the dates and the years and the, the documents and things of that nature. But then, you know, the walls and like all the decorations and all that stuff is right. like all the stories and stuff. And you kind of have both that make up the house, but you know, you don't want to just walk around a house that's framed and there's nothing in it. And, but at the same token, you need some of that structure because it does tell you a little bit about your past and where they came from and the trail and the history. So I always just tell people it's kind of two sides of it. There's the technical or the dates and then there is those stories. And you, once like you can't, ha don't have access to your family members anymore for whatever reason, if they're getting older, you can't get the stories. So exactly, exactly. I'm thinking that. of one story here. You know, my, my mother tells, told me the story of how my parents met and they were really young. My mom was 13. My father was 16. And 
in telling the story, I mean, I'll skip the details of it, but one of the elements is that my father was waiting outside in the courtyard. My mom had, um, you know, was a, had like an apartment part of this courtyard. And the guy who lived next door was somebody that my dad used to work with. And my father was standing outside, even though it was raining, waiting for the guy to come home because his wife was alone in the house and it wasn't proper for a man to be in, in the home, right. Of another man's wife when he wasn't there. Right. So just in that little detail that's, you know, to my mom and telling me this story is not necessarily a really big deal. I think I might've even had to ask her like, why was he waiting outside? Right. You learn a lot about the culture, right? That your your ancestors lived in. Right, the values. Yeah. The values, right, how it worked. So you just, once you get people talking, you know, little things like that that are really actually very big things come out. Right, and you might start to also then recognize why you got, you know, you were raised a certain way or why your family had exactly. certain rules and things of that nature because of what they experienced. That's right? a great point. Yep. That's a, yeah. it's a terrific point. Yeah. All right. So there's your Q and a episode. We appreciate all the questions and we're always open to more because, you know, we can do these episodes and we want to do these episodes on a regular basis. I mean, listen, we are, um, certainly not Italian American experts in the, in, in that we can answer all your questions, but thanks to the new neighborhood and some groups and a lot of the people that we met through the podcast, we do have conversations about a lot of these things and that's helpful for us to try to answer some of your questions and hope you, you can, you know, continue to connect with your heritage, which is what we're trying to do here. So with that, stick with us. We're going to come back and take you out of this one in just a moment. So once again, thank you for sharing your questions with us. We appreciate them. And, you know, we're always interested in trying to enrich your Italian American experience. And we hope that if we can provide some answers or some insights to them, we would love to continue to do it. So continue to send us your questions. And for now, I'm going to kick it over to Dolores to take us out. Okay, I'm going to read a quick iTunes review. This is from Lisa Pagliari. Hope I pronounced that right, Lisa. Five-star review, nothing like it anywhere else. I have loved this podcast since it launched. The hosts are very personable and great hosts. I like it so much that I joined their community, the new neighborhood, and have really enjoyed it. I highly recommend it especially for those who didn't have the luxury of growing up in an Italian neighborhood. I feel like I have come home and that my biznoni would be proud of me because of it. Grazie mille. Thank you, Lisa. This is a great that's review. Great. Yeah, that's awesome. Terrific. She joined, joined the neighborhood and, uh, and that she seems like she's having a good time in there. Yeah, for sure. I think everyone's having a good time. <laughs> so to wrap up, we are on social media. We are on Facebook. Twitter and Instagram and you can find us just by searching the Italian American podcast. Arrivederci. Arrivederci.